So the question in the first chapter for today, Law Enforcement Functions and Organizations, is the division between the police function on controlling deviance and the police function in providing order. Uh, this is a big dilemma for police forces because these are very different functions. And the way most societies divide the two is through specialization. But obviously, less developed countries uh, often don't have that kind of functional functionality preparation that's required to provide security. And so they just call on the army to provide order when things get out of control. And the army is trained to kill as opposed to be trained in riot control using tear gas, water cannons, uh, and other uh, shields and batons, if necessary, hitting people, but trying to avoid that. And of course, you can break somebody's skull and kill them with a baton if you, someone's not properly trained. Uh, it, one of the exemplars of a country that went from being untrained and committed atrocities to that became extremely professional is a country that's still afflicted with many riots and protests, and that is South Korea. South Korea had a couple of massacres in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, one in the south of Korea, which killed 300 people that really discredited the regime. So it was in the regime's own interest because it was an aspiring modern regime that wanted to trade with the world uh, to improve its crowd control techniques. And so South Korea has many protests against the regime. To this day, there's a lot of corruption, and there's a lot of left-wing support for solidarity with North Korea and general anti-imperialist protest to the presence of US troops and other Western troops. But now the crowd is, crowds are kept uh, under control without any loss of life and without really any major police violence. The chapter starts off with an interesting description of uh, a protest at a nuclear uh, weapons site uh, in Germany uh, where 40 to 50,000 protesters emerge, and a very small minority was violent. So an additional dilemma you have with situations where most of the protesters are nonviolent is the presence, presence of what critics would call provocateurs, provo pro people that provoke a police overreaction with violence, which they hope to use to encourage a general uprising. Uh, you know, very rare do you have situations where the protests are strictly nonviolent. When Gandhi was protesting British colonialism, he instructed in some of his, um, some of these scenes you can see in the movie Gandhi, or if you read about his history, you know, where they, they went and took, getting bashed over the head with batons uh, after the, you know, the British had actually, the officer had offered lethal force that murdered protesters, and that discredited the British, and then Bashing people over the head also discredited the British, but the British were sensitive uh, to this kind of criticism, and eventually the costs of repression, given their sensitivity to, to democratic legitimacy and the logic of their own words about supporting uh, human rights and British rights, rights of Englishmen, uh, led to a contradiction that led the British very quickly in 1947, just two years after the first decolonizations occurred in Syria and Lebanon, uh, to uh, partition and grant independence to on the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and you know that kind of dialectical logic was obviously true in the Declaration of Independence in the United States, where Jefferson's words, "All men are created equal," obviously contradicted the same practice of slavery. 
uh, in the colonies and led to, some, to a kind of process that took a long time to end, but obviously couldn't continue if you were going to claim to create uh, an independent republic that appealed to the Declaration of Independence. And it was no accident that Lincoln, in his second inaugural, after having issued the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, appealed to the Declaration of Independence rather than the preamble of the US Constitution as a basis for American political thought uh, and the, the Civil War itself. And that was a major change in American history was to rely less on the Constitution and more on the Declaration of Independence as a founding philosophical do document in American thought. And I think that's generalizable to say that um, highly developed democracies have to develop forms of social control as opposed to traditional policing, which are consistent with human rights standards. And that's in their enlightened self-interest because as democracies, they can function at a more high level if people have more rights and therefore are more motivated to work hard for themselves in private enterprise. But that also means you can't you know, use extra legal methods without due process of law. Now, in poor countries around the world, uh, there's much more frequent resort to establishing order as well as controlling social deviance. And yet, there's less institutional capacity to try to provide stability in the country um, because we don't have this specialized training and we don't have specialized units to this nearly the same extent than you would have in a developed country. So you're much more likely to have atrocities. It's cheaper just to shoot to kill. Uh, the leaders may even think it's more effective to use those kinds of techniques. Uh, the rise of the human rights movement have made it harder to do it in secret, but that doesn't stop certain regimes who cannot be named and shamed from resorting to those kinds of techniques. Now, the Germans were able to respond to that nuclear protest in a way that uh, did not kill anyone. They used water cannons and tear gas, which you know is, is not exactly uh, an unrough technique, but you know nobody was seriously hurt from that type of approach. And they didn't overreact, and so they didn't get the kind of uprising that the Bader-Meinhof gang and other uh, militant anarchist and right left-wing groups, rather, uh, wanted to inspire during that period of time. Now, deviance control is more traditional policing. It's the policing that we're more familiar with. Uh, we call it deviance simply as a sociological term. You could just say illegal. But obviously, there, there are certain laws that are not really enforced or enforceable, uh, and they're not deviant. And the reason they're not enforced usually is because, more often than not, uh, it's the norm, not the deviant. So speeding is the most obvious example of that. Uh, I, I don't even know. Is it 65 degrees on the interstate is technically the speed limit? It was reduced to 55 during the second energy crisis of the 70s. Yeah. I think 65 is the technical speed limit. It may be 70 uh, in some areas. Um, in Germany, where I was uh, just recently, there has, I always knew there was never any technical speed limits. But what happens is certain neighborhoods impose their own speed limits on the autobahn, the highways, because uh, certainly cons when construction is going on, you have to slow traffic down. And sometimes you know, they just don't want people riding the equivalent, since they use kilometers per hour equivalent of 100 miles an hour 
through their neighborhoods, uh, it's louder, it's noisy, and obviously it's more dangerous. So, um, but in the United States, you know, the norm, I guess, when the, it's not rush hour is, is 75, 80. And I guess you don't usually get ticketed if you're doing 80. Uh, but if you do 85, then you're, you are deviant, and therefore you could probably be ticketed for it. So we say deviance control. Uh, obviously, certain forms of drug use have not been enforced very often. But it, it's a little bit tricky because sometimes the police will bust you for marijuana possession and use, even if you're not a dealer. But that typically would be in a situation where you're probably doing something else that's illegal. Uh, so training for deviance control is different. And the actions that you would undertake is also different, right? If it's a matter of social control, you're dealing with a highly political phenomenon. Because people are usually politically motivated in protesting. And especially if they resort to violence, they justify on the grounds of their political ideology the use of violence to overthrow what they regard as an unjust regime. Very few people would take the attitude of Gandhi towards Hitler, where Gandhi was asked in the movie, if you saw the movie, uh, by an American reporter from Life magazine who was also a photographer, well, would you have used nonviolence against Hitler? Because it presumably would not have worked. And Gandhi's response was, we have to even be prepared to die in order for nonviolence to work. And many of us would have died. And indeed, Gandhi did die, not, not in opposing the British, but uh, in advocating uh, a multinational state of Hindus and Muslims and also Christians and Sikhs. Uh, in, in independent India, and an Hindu, Hindu fundamentalist murdered him after the partition process had been announced by the British. And even though uh, you know, they were going to divide the countries along at least Muslim-Hindu lines, uh, when, you don't, when you're facing a violent regime, most people are not willing to sacrifice their life, at least if they're civilians not fighting in an army. Uh, and so when they, in the face of violence and unprepared to die themselves, they resist violence with violence. And violence begets violence. So the dilemma of using re resisting violence with violence is, A, you're actually increasing the risk to yourself of being killed, because then you're doing something clearly illegal. And they can always say, you resisted arrest by using violence, so we shot to kill. But the other part of the dilemma is that you are uh, increasing the escalation of violence in a tit-for-tat fashion. Now, there have been studies. Robert Axel Axelrod is famous for this famous argument that in a situation of tit-for-tat violence, it's a rational thing to respond with violence because in the long run, eventually, there will be a point of yielding. The question is, will you get to that point of yielding in your lifetime? And if you look around the world, there's been a crisis in the Middle East for my entire life. I'm not going to say they'll never get peace in the Middle East, because I do think peace is possible everywhere for a variety of reasons. But, and also because I lived through the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I, when I grew up, I just assumed it never occurred to me that communism would ever go away in most of the world. So I do think the Palestinians and the Israelis you know, will make peace with each other. Of course, it's possible that. We could have nuclear Armageddon before that, you know, involving other powers. And Israel and Palestine you know, could be one of the victims, or other countries could be the victims from that. But anyway, it's at least possible to have peace there. And a lot will depend, of course, on 
whether both sides regard the use of violence as mutually hurting and going nowhere in a stalemate. And so to reach the point where tit-for-tat violence in a political context is no longer escalating is a situation where you have a mutually hurting stalemate. Uh, and you know it takes a long time to get to that situation. So long as either side thinks they can win militarily, whether you're talking about a war or a low intentionally violent situation, you're not going to reach a mutually hurting stalemate until both sides are hurting mutually and they agree that they can't win through using violence. Now, why didn't World War II end in a mutually hurting stalemate? Well, because the Allies said that they wouldn't negotiate with Hitler or the Japanese Empire, for that matter. But also, having perpetrated the Holocaust in Hitler's case and many war crimes in the Japanese Empire's case, uh, there was probably a sense, even though there had never been war crimes trials that were successful in any major international war up to that point, there was probably a sense that the leaders, that they would personally be shot if they negotiated a peace settlement. But it's possible that you know, they could have negotiated amnesty for themselves. Uh, in any event, Hitler was probably too proud to uh, negotiate. But if you got, had gotten rid of Hitler, then they got uh, other leaders to take over in, a, in the coup. If the coup plot had been successful, then, of course, uh, they could have negotiated with them. Now, in most wars, most wars are internal wars since the end of the Cold War, not international wars, although obviously we have the Afghanistan and Iraq and Kosovo examples. Uh, but you know that, that's three out of 40 to 50 other civil wars. And in those situations, it's not even clear whether there's one or two sides. So take Pakistan, which is an example of a, now an international war with the United States using drone missiles. There's the Afghan Taliban. There's the Pakistani Taliban. And there are different types of Pakistani Talibans. One of the points of great friction in the Afghanistan situation is that the United States does not want, at least if you take uh, Karzai's viewpoint, the president of Afghanistan, the United States does not want to negotiate with Taliban, or at least elements of the US administration do, do not, whereas Karzai says that he does. Although he may be using that argument because he also wants to make sure he can rig the next elections and stay in power, probably because he's such a corrupt leader that he knows that he could be sued for corruption if they lost a free election and the next, people, next side came into power. Now, training for deviants around the world is a different whole order of category, right? Theoretically, it's apolitical. Now, of course, you could argue that unemployment drives crime, and therefore uh, the criminal should not be punished because they're a victim of unemployment or of sociological forces, including unsafe neighborhoods, the drug dealer on the street, etc. We take the position in most countries that deviant behavior is, by definition, apolitical. So regardless of what made you the way you are, if you commit a crime, you will be punished. And that's both to treat like cases alike, but also uh, to have a philosophy that says that you will be deterred from doing crimes in the future because of the certainty of, and likelihood of punishment, or likelihood of punishment. Uh, deviance training is usually on the job, but there's usually a police academy 
Um, and increasingly, at least in the United States, a bachelor's degree is required uh, to become an officer, at least if not to go to the police academy, at least to have a regular promotion scale. And then if you want to be a detective and so forth, you have to excel on the job and also get advanced training in school. Uh, now, the question is, what happens in the developing world, which represents two-thirds of the world's population, uh, or at least uh, one-third for sure, and another third which is upwardly mobile? The first is that uh, the professionalism of the police force and deviance control is generally improves with the development in the country. In poor countries, I'm sorry to say, most police are corrupt. And they often get their jobs by bribing someone to get their jobs. And certainly to get an officer position in the police force, you have to bribe somebody as a return on investment. So just to give you an example, uh, in Pakistan, I, I just wrote a, I, I do a lot of these asylum briefs as an expert so-called expert. Um, I don't argue the law, but this is a case of a Pakistani woman who married a Niger uh, Kenyan diplomat who then victimized her, attacked her, and had someone sh throw a knife at her. And she's now in Atlanta. And uh, my brief basically said uh, the Kenyan diplomat to hire somebody uh, to attack her, should she ever get deported and sent back to Pakistan, is a very real threat because Pakistan, it's not uncommon. I'm not saying most police officers are corrupt, and I'm not saying most of the Pakistani elite perpetrate domestic violence and, uh, and, and so forth, but I I'll certainly will say it's not uncommon. Um, and so, therefore, it's a very real risk of political persecution. Now, there are not many cases of domestic violence as a ground for political asylum, but there are a couple. And so she has at least a chance of getting uh, this, although Atlanta is a very difficult place. We, along with the Carolinas circuit, have the lowest rate of granting political asylum in the country. But I've won a few over the years. And you, know, you never know uh, uh, what the situation will be. I mean, the fact that a knife was thrown at her uh, is pretty compelling evidence that uh, that this guy may be serious about the threats that he makes to like get her if she goes back. Excuse me? Like expertly thrown? Like somebody who's able to throw knives? And like a it hit her bag. It just missed her. Oh, okay. It wasn't like he's mad and he just do it? Like, you know, he didn't throw it. He had somebody do it. Well, that's the inference. It's like some James Bond stuff or something. I, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is when I, I volunteered to do this through an organization called GAIN, which I think is called stands for the Georgia Alliance for Immigration and Detent and, and Naturalization, um, and so unfortunately the lawyers that take these cases, you know, take the most exotic ones. So I've had I've been an expert in a lot of unusual exotic cases, like a, an ethnic Tajik Shia in Afghanistan being accused of being a Sunni Pashtun terrorist and therefore kept in immigrant detention for that. And I, I just basically said, he's not going to join al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda is Sunni. Very simple and obvious point, but US intelligence didn't seem to know that. Immigration service, as it was then known, uh, didn't know that at the border. So the other point of saying is, if you're just a routine person who's been beaten up in your country and you can't prove it, you can't even get a lawyer. And if you can't get a lawyer, you probably never get political asylum. And you, and you can get deported. 
And in our district, you can be deported without a hearing. Whereas other circuits, you're at least entitled to a hearing. Was there another question? OK, um, so professionalism is a big, big problem. And obviously, that takes resources. It also requires getting rid of corruption. Uh, in a democracy, if it's truly a functioning democracy, it's usually correlated with country with more resources. You can pay the police a decent salary. And it really is a scandal, if not wicked and illegal, to take a bribe. And therefore, it's easier to get policing to be done on an apolitical uh, and neutral professional basis. And it's also easier to, to train police in following the procedures that are required for functioning a democracy, because that is the ideological position of the country. It's what civilians want. And civilians are more likely to have control by having elected officials be having superior responsibility. In developing countries, both with armies but also with police forces, it's very hard to have civilian control over those agencies because there's no civilian control over the government. And by civilian, I, I really mean elected officials. So in a country like Pakistan, which has an electoral tradition and has many of the human rights tradition of the British Empire, nevertheless, you have a civil and military bureaucracy that's extremely autonomous and will throw its weight around against elected officials and often enjoys, I say enjoys in quote, the fact that the elected officials are mostly corrupt themselves, and so they can selectively use the corruption card to persecute any elected official who doesn't play ball with what they want, which is not to have power themselves, but basically to have all the privileges and status uh, and fancy homes and servants and all the rest of it that they've been long accustomed in that highly unequal society. All right, regarding police and community relations. First of all, uh, community policing has been the technique uh, that's been developed to try to improve relations. The most effective police forces are regarded as friends, not enemies of the neighborhood. And in highly tense situations, usually with high crime rates, the police are regarded, as they used to say in the 60s, as pigs which is you know, the worst situation both for the community and for the police. And typically, situations that are highly political, where there's a great deal of social disorder, are also situations where the police are called upon to provide the order-creating function, and therefore using more force, and therefore more likely to be regarded as the enemy by the community. Whereas in a situation of political stability where the police are not called upon very often to provide order, they don't have a history of shooting people in the community or beating them up. And therefore, they are trusted by the community more. And therefore, the community provides information, beginning with reporting of crimes, where if the police are not trusted, you're not going to report a crime to the police because they just figure, oh, well, then they'll come and beat us up. So the idea of implementing community policing is twofold. One is to try to get more trust between the community and the police, so at least reduce the level of hostility and maybe even have positive relationships, because the communities that generally uh, are afflicted with the highest crime rates are also the ones that often have the most bitter relationships with the police force. 
it's very difficult in highly heterogeneous societies you know, to get police of the same ethnic group who are not regarded as traitors by to their own community. But if you have someone from a different ethnic or racial group policing, then they're regarded as the enemy because they're not on your side in what are ongoing ethnic and uh, racial tensions. Uh, do we have a couple, just one minute left? Um, so basically to conclu conclude this discussion, Japan is the archetype described in the, in the reading of a, a situation that I described on Monday where the policeman is almost a social worker. Indeed, there are many police women, at least in their 20s, until in Japan, historically, women do start families. But you know, they have a lot of women dealing with social control in a way that's almost like a social worker. That model is not replicated very often anywhere but the idea of community police, policing is to try to improve relations and imbue trust, even to have local people in the neighborhood provide the street walking that police are asked to do in a community policing model, rather than ha having two people in a car, which means you're cut off from the community, you're regarded as being behind a fortress, and you only come out with guns up, as opposed to police walking a beat, getting to know everyone in the neighborhood, presenting a human face to the side of the police, and, and then you know showing by their deeds that they're trusted, and also having them deployed in areas where the crime rates are highest so that they deter crime, and therefore improve the level of safety in that particular neighborhood. OK, thanks very much, and I'll see you on Monday.